1: On today's show, performer, writer, director, and comedian, Larry Owens, best known for his role as Usher in the off-Broadway musical, A Strange Loop. Owens talks about carving out a space for himself in the American theater.
0: As a fat Black person, I'm not supposed to be intellectual, complex, or the lead of a musical. But I was walking into the audition room as this, wanting to be that. And so it wasn't even that people were like, you're untalented. They just had nothing to give me because the Black track in the back of the ensemble can't pull focus, but I was like, hey, I can
1: handle text. His relationship with his body.
0: I've never, as Larry Owens, wanted to change my body. I've wanted to change how the world interacts with my body. Twitter. I think that Twitter captures the mania of living right now, where truly at any given moment we are watching impeachment hearings and then we're going bead by bead on the gown at the Golden Globes. And then we're utterly pivoting to like now we have to save another faction of children who are like being under put under siege by the government.
1: And now here's the Kiki Palmer meme. And thankfully sings for us. A bit of Lot's Wife from the 2003 Janine Tesori, Tony Kushner musical, Caroline or Change.
0: I was literally like singing, Murder me God, down in that basement. Murder my dreams, so I stop wanting. 11 years old. Murder my hope of him returning. Strangle the pride that makes me crazy. Make me forget, so I stop grieving. Scour my skin. Scour my skin.
1: Stop feeling.
0: Shut up, Evan.
1: Hey guys, what's up? It's Evan Ross Katz. You are listening to Shut Up, Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. I am joined once again by my producer, Alden Peters. Hello. Alden, how is it going?
2: Um, Other than slowly losing my mind in quarantine, everything's great. Yeah, the mushier my brain gets, the the more calm I feel. I think that we're all sort of like on that wavelength at this point. Have you been sort of like
1: maintaining order in terms of putting things throughout your day as sort of demarcators
2: of time and, and day of the week? Um, To some extent, yes. I think I've actually been more productive during this time than otherwise. Like I'm super fortunate that I still have a day job and I'm working from home doing that. So that gives some structure to my day. Um, we're still doing this podcast, so that keeps me busy. Um, and I'm because I'm not spending time commuting, like I get have more hours during the day to get some writing done and focus on creating things. I'm probably not spending as much time just relaxing as I should. I know that that's one thing about working from home that they advise against is like making sure that you don't let work creep into every moment of your day. And this last week, especially, I think I've done that a little too much. So I'm trying to walk myself back. What about you? How are you finding this time?
1: It goes in waves in terms of like how much I'm able to shut out the rest of the world because sometimes that's like easier than other times. I've tried to keep some of like my routines in place, specifically with like my runs in the morning, which have been really like foundational. Oh, for in sure. In terms of like yeah. literally keeping me on my feet and also just sort of getting fresh air, getting sun. But we're going to get through it. And uh, that's the most hope I can muster. Um, Keeping on the theme of Korotki. I wanted to take today to zoom in on the ways that coronavirus has impacted the global theater community. And I think part of the reasoning behind that was our guest today, Larry Owens, who is a big presence and an important presence within the theater community. And so that got me thinking about theater and specifically New York theater. As of today, and we taped this episode, it's March 28th today, um, under Governor Cuomo's mass gathering restrictions, Broadway can resume performances as early as April 13th which is just a few weeks away. That ordinance was first announced on March 12th. And as you can imagine, the governor has been a little busy in his time since. But Alden, as someone that lives in New York and sort of has witnessed, you know, theater and not just Broadway, but also the Brooklyn Academy of Music and and the New York Philharmonic and so many sort of parts, you know, tentacles of the theater world, close. what's that been like for you?
2: I do not go to the theater as much as I should, especially living in the city. It's kind of... One of those those things about New York that I'm not taking advantage of and I know that I should be mostly it's like a cost barrier of entry for me personally. So in terms of like as an audience member, I would say not much at all, but I do have many friends that are actors, many friends that are musical theater people, and it's extremely tough. For those performers for whom, like, there are already so few roles. They're already working, you know, multiple part time jobs and doing auditions on the side. And that's just for a handful of opportunities. And now there aren't even a handful of opportunities. So I think, like, the human cost is what I'm seeing more of.
1: It also feels like it's going to be a particularly hard mechanism to get started back up again because the construct of theater is bringing lots of people into a space together. Even when they do formally reopen Broadway and theatrical productions around the world, it's not as easy as like an on-off switch. So right now Broadway has turned to the internet as so many communities and groups of people have done, you know. And I wanted to bring up Rosie O'Donnell because I was so excited to see Rosie bringing back the Rosie O'Donnell show for one night only. She brought the show back in a virtual sense with guests like she had Gloria Estefan on, she had Sarah Jessica Parker, Barry Manilow, Billy Porter. um, One of my favorite Broadway tenors, Gavin Creel appeared on the special. And literally, this was like so funny, or not funny. He announced that he had coronavirus before bursting out into a live performance of You Matter to Me from Waitress the Musical. The fever, the headaches. I lost my sense of smell and taste. I haven't gotten those back. I'm eating asparagus and it might as well be rubber. I don't know. <clears throat> you know, I feel like that epitomizes the world right now, which is like someone tells you something so tragic, but they're doing so on a live special of a throwback television show from the 90s that's airing on YouTube that has Miranda Sings on it. I mean, like, just the layers of uh, brain brokenness that I think we're all <laughs> enduring. <laughs> yep. You know, I just thought that moment, I I don't mean to laugh at it, but I do find it funny. It's one of those things. But um, that special raised half a million dollars for the Actors Fund. So I want to shout out Rosie, but I also just want to say it's like, though it seems like everyone is going live and everyone is sort of... um, kind of taking this opportunity to put out content. I want people, myself included, to be aware of the fact that a lot of that content actually is doing more than maybe meets the eye in terms of the way in which the content creators using their platform to perhaps bring attention to things, but also raise funds. And I think Rosie is such a great example.
2: For sure, kudos to her. Love her.
1: Um, And then last, I just wanna touch on a story that I wrote recently for Condé Nast's Them in which I spoke with a number of Broadway performers, including Stephanie J. Block, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and my friend Benj Pasek. And one thing that Benj said for the story that I thought was really interesting, he said, quote, we have to pivot, obviously, and yes, ultimately the most ideal version of it, it being theater, is not a digital experience, but we're figuring out how to make it work in this digital world where we literally can't be together, a fundamental element of what makes theater theater. And I I thought that was such an interesting quote because I think there is an honesty there about the fact that though obviously we are going to experience art in the only way we have access to it, which seems to be right now be the internet, there is something undeniably lost in the live performance that is theater that cannot be replicated on the internet i know i've seen several drag performers offer a similar perspective um, about the ways in which yes we should totally take advantage of this medium that we have while one can also recognize and be a little despondent about the fact that the kinetic energy of live performance for the time being does not exist is that a downer
2: It's a little bit of a downer, but it's also, (laughs) but that's, that's what we're living through at the moment. Um, But it's also like the, you know, the best that we can do. Like at least we still have access. Sure. It's not as powerful as it is live, but at least it's there.
1: I completely agree. Um, And on that note, uh, let's turn things over to a legend of the theater world without any further ado, Larry Owens. Let's do it. He is a comedian, an actor, a singer, and a podcaster who hails from East Baltimore. He has appeared on film in 2018's To Dust, 2019's Last Ferry, and will appear in the upcoming film Silent Retreat opposite Isabella Rossellini and Dennis Haysburg. He has appeared on the small screen on True TV's Paid Off with Michael Torpey, Comedy Central's Dollar Store Therapist, and most recently on the HBO series High Maintenance. He starred in the 2019 Playwrights Horizons musical A Strange Loop, earning rave reviews for his role as Usher. Owens is a powerhouse, charming and sympathetic, nailing the comedy and pathos of his role with grace to spare, The Observer's David Cote wrote in his review. Vulture's Sarah Holden wrote, quote, Owens's brave, raw performance is a bracing clapback at a city, a culture, and a profession obsessed with image and rife with hypocrisy. His podcast, What Makes You Sing, puts him in conversation with actors, comedians, and musicians about music that made their lives and has him singing with guests, including Benito Skinner, Natalie Walker, and former Shut Up Evan guest, Cole Escola. He is heartfelt. He is gentle. He has talent in crevices I didn't even know talent could exist. He is the great Larry Owens. Oh, shuts
0: up. Okay, what did I get wrong? That was, That was well written, but <laughs> it was it was effusive. Uh, and I would say, I would say, the parts that, 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 uh, that, uh, that can be MLA checked were, were factual.
2: Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the, the praise is, I think that's what is that subjective? Okay. Yeah. 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 And then and then then there's objective. Yeah. Yeah. The dates were right.
1: (laughs) Okay. Okay. Good to know. Um. Very good to know. So before we actually get into it, I I texted you yesterday and I asked you what you wanted for your breakfast order. Yeah. And you said plain bagel, sausage, egg, and cheese. Right. I guess I
0: sausage egg and cheese on a plain toasted bagel. Yeah.
1: And I just am so curious. My boyfriend too loves a plain bagel, and I just feel like with all the accoutrements that you can have you know, attached on your bagel, you know, poppy seeds, sesame seeds, onion flakes, what have you. Playing bagel
0: yeah it's i'm a new yorker like i live here i'm not a tourist i'm not a six-year-old girl like i don't need flavor on top like this is a meal Mm -hmm. this is like you asked me what i needed for an hour of podcasting this is work i don't know what you believe out there but podcasting is legitimate work like sex work no i'm trivializing a really really important political stance no but podcasting is work so it's just it's my fuel is my feel. So that's my morning bagel order. It's Saturday, so I was feeling like crazy, and I said sausage. <laughs> but um, – and late at night, I'll do a peanut butter and jelly on a toasted plain bagel as well. So good. Yeah, so it's like savory, sweet, carby. You know, it's perfect
1: But for. never uh, an everything bagel? Everything bagel is so indulgent. Mm. It's
0: so much flavor. It's like if it's before noon – what are we celebrating?
1: Mm, okay. So like <laughs> so like a special occasion bagel. Absolutely. So if
0: we're at a Continental Breakfast, say we're at the meet and greet. I love that specificity. At the meet and greet. Yes. At the meet and greet. And in front of people. Yeah. But at home, just, I think that's just something that I want to really get across to the people is that like on stage, you get everything. But then at home with Larry, you get plain. Love it. Bagels as metaphor.
1: Yeah, bagels as metaphor. Good morning. Is that what you wanted? (laughs) (laughs) So I actually had the good fortune of seeing you perform twice recently. (laughs) Um, The first time was during New York Fashion Week at Susan Alexandra the Musical. For people that don't know, Susan Alexandra is a handbag designer in New York, a fucking talented one, and a really, really kind person as well. And you performed in a musical that she put on during Fashion Week. And I remember a friend approached me afterwards, after we had both seen it, and my friend was crying. And I said, why are you crying? And she said, I don't know why. And so I, I, I bring that up only to explain to people that the this 20-minute musical, I think, made a lot of people in the room, specifically the fashion elite in the room, if you will, feel in a way that perhaps is uncommon in in, in a fashion setting. Yeah. Can you sort of talk (laughs) about your feelings on that?
0: Well, first of all, I just love Susan Alexandra. I can't believe that I can say that as a plus size, dark skinned, gay boy that I walked Fashion Week and my, my friend Natalie Walker she was at one of the showings and she said uh, she tweeted or she Instagrammed whatever she socialed Larry just did the 11 o'clock number at Fashion Week which is the same as walking last <laughs> which is hilarious comparison <laughs> but yeah no Susan just has like the most amazing taste not just in design and aesthetic but also in people so I have like been like she came on my radar just with like relationship to amazing comedians who've done her shows who always done her conventional or in the past couple years have done her unconventional runway shows kat cohen Lawrence servideo benito skinner and so just like her having great taste in people is amazing and that's how i got in the room when i carry this bag, because i carry um one of her bags now one of my jokes when i do stand up i walk on stage one of the first things i say the first thing i say is always bring your bag on stage aretha franklin taught me that so now i bring my susan alexandra
1: I love it. I think it's interesting, too, what you mentioned about being a plus-size black gay man at New York Fashion Week. I'm curious, what's your relationship with fashion?
0: Yeah, aesthetic has always been—in the black community, it's just so important like how you dress and how you present to the world. I think just like from a safety standpoint, like in the 20th century, like my parents, like how you present to the world is how you will be judged. And so that combined with like a Sunday church culture, like I've always been assessing and putting together like shapes and things, but like my own style is very utilitarian, (laughs) like a, like a, like a true artist. Like I have to do, I have to go through so many shapes And places that like I actually like a neutrality to what I wear. But in terms of like identifying and like really curating taste for myself, it's like something that I've loved. And like one of my like best friends from I I went from East Baltimore to boarding school, which is like a complete. 180 you know in terms of just privilege and access and the people i was around and and one of like my escapes was definitely looking at a lot of like blogs and and oh my god the sartorialist yes. <laughs> do you remember that blog oh my of god course. the style the style guy gq magazine i was so every for breaks i would take the train home And I would get a GQ or whenever I would fly somewhere, like, I would get a GQ magazine and just, like, keep up with, you know, like, what's, like, what are the tastes, what are the trends, like, where are we going, like, and then having my own judgments about it. So, like, not just accepting, like, this is it, but, like, okay, I feel this way about it. So, with the high-maintenance premiere, GQ did a story on the casting of that show. So, after all of these years, like, I got to be in GQ, which is one of those crazy moments where... I grew up so far away. I, so I will say, I grew up, I grew up so far away from Broadway, not geographically, but ideologically. Like the way that things were set up for me, it's crazy. It's crazy. High came out Friday. Fashion Week was Saturday, and. And there were people who had, like, experienced both. There were people at Susan's show who had seen the episode. And then, like, other people who had, like, also seen me, like, do a comedy show earlier that week. So, like, three completely different modes of storytelling All birthed from the same impetus and passion.
1: And if I might add, three breakout performances.
0: (laughs) Yeah, there are
1: three. Again, (laughs) subjective. (laughs) Subjective, (laughs) bitch. No, um, I do want to ask though. You know, you mentioned sort of like reading The Sartorialist and growing up with fashion around you. I know that fashion is not something that has historically been good to, to plus-size individuals. No, it's not inclusive. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and despite the fact that I think the some narratives that percolate tend to position fashion as being aware of this conversation and working on this conversation... In actuality, the advancements that we've made are few and far between. What's your thoughts on that?
0: It's mostly on the female or the femme presenting side. So like when I'm having an opening night and I'm wanting to wear a suit that's not black, it's not a penguin suit, then I have to go to female plus size. And actually, I had a really fun moment last week where I was working with someone. And they were like, "That pink suit, like, where would you get that from?" And I was like, "It's a big girl brand. You can't wear it, bitch. Okay, like how fun it is to tell you that like you want to wear what I'm wearing, and they don't make it in your size. Like they don't they don't make it in fabric small enough for you." <laughs> No, I'm a bitch. But no, so I feel like there are a lot of advancements on the femme side, but I feel like uh, mass presenting people and men, like we don't have as many options for being my size. I feel mean, like fat people are fun and <laughs> when we have to go to get dressed, we have, we like look like factory workers because like people want to keep us, you know, hidden and like in the back. Like you, you can you can consume our products and you can, you know, bolster our whatever, our narratives, but we don't want to look at you. And it's like, no, we are the best people that you know and we're about to start being the best looking people that you know without having to change what you said was wrong with us. Like, if I was a rapper, I would have no dysmorphia. You know what I mean? Like a like a big dude rapper, like has such a has such a space carved out for him, like in terms of what that world is. And unfortunately, in musical theater and in traditional acting spaces, like being black, that's not true.
1: You like me are a theater queen. Yeah. You have this quote that I love. You said, Musical theater has been my life-saving grace. Musical theater storytelling changes my body chemistry. In what way would you say theater has shaped who you are?
0: Theater is, like, it is a truly alchemic response. Like, when a bitch is in a situation, in a circumstance, they're in such a bind that the only place to go is into song. And if, like, by extension, that song is so big and it's so... Why? That it goes into dance? Like, yeah, I'm coming. Like, it is just, and it doesn't matter where it's happening, community theater, church play, Broadway, on the subway, like, it doesn't matter where it's happening, I'm immediately clued in. So that was me just watching television. Anytime there was a school play on a television show my temperature would raise. It just, I can't describe it. It It's just the best form of storytelling. It makes sense. It is the storytelling we've always had, I think, globally.
1: It's so interesting because your energy in talking about it completely changed just now. And it reminds (laughs) me, I was listening to Claire Danes being interviewed by Terry Gross a few weeks ago. And one of the interesting things she was describing was how when she plays roles outside of herself, like playing her character on Homeland who's bipolar, she said that it sort of like invades her and Terry noted how the way Claire Danes was talking, her heartbeat in talking about it literally raised as a result of sort of, by talking about it, it started to take over her body.
0: She embodied it because that's the place that you have to go where acting, especially on camera, it's so like check in, check out, that when they call action, there is no time to fully reroute. Like in the theater, you have half hour, you can go into, you know, such a complex, you know, hall of mirrors of the mind to find things and then go on self-contained, and drop, you know, cold down and go home. On set, it's it's drop in, drop out. So like being able to even just hear the character's name and find it in the body is the training at Steppenwolf where I was trained. They, Amy Morton, she said, acting. They put sensors on actors, and it's the exact same heart rate as a firefighter going into a burning building. Just basically saying this shit is stressful. It will always be stressful. Like, don't beat yourself up. Was the lesson there? When I think about theater, I think about it being immediate. My handle is Larry Owens Live online. Please follow me, Larry Owens Live. Ten K. I just need ten K because because <laughs> I feel like. I I feel
1: like I don't exist without 10K. It's like Mama Rose saying, all that I need is 88 bucks. All that
0: I need is 10,000 followers. (laughs) 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 No, but it's so, but Larry Owens Live is because like when I'm with people in a room, I know I can get across what I need to get across and theater is all about communication
1: Musical theater is this fabulous medium because anything is possible, but there are some goalposts that exist, like the I want number, which typically falls at the very beginning of the show in which the leading character proclaims their innermost desires. What do you love most about musical theater in terms of the structure of it all? It's the structure that
0: we see in everything. It's how everything is structured. Like a concert relies on this structure. Uh, Movies rely on this structure. It just works so well, it's infallible. Every musical works on this structure, or it's actively subverting it. And there's such beauty in structure because all you do is you slot in iconoclastic material inside of it. And because our hearts work rhythmically, using the rhythms of that storytelling, everyone comes <laughs> Sorry, all of the training at if is like super like dirty and like visceral to make you feel it. So all I can think about is like either like living, dying or coming <laughs> in terms of tech, acting technique. But it, but it does work in that physical way, f- physical, emotional way. Um, Yeah, opening number. You you have to establish the world that we're living in, and you get to. You get to make all of the rules in the opening number. You know, how many people there are, how, like, the scope of the story, big or small. The I want number. We need a person to follow through this as our heartbeat. You know, as, like, who you're going to literally manipulate as an artist into getting the audience to feel what you want to feel. That's why the I want is the hook. And usually they have amazing hooks. Act one finale has to work in a certain way. It has to either, you know, set up to make the audience want to come back. And then we have an act two opener, which has a really specific thing to do. The 11 o'clock number, the elusive 11 o'clock number where the character, all of the musical and dramatic themes come together and clash. And then, you know, we have our finale. Either send them out into the uh, streets with joy or with or ponderousness.
1: <laughs> and it's interesting because whether or not you're conscious of that structure you will feel all of the beats that you're intended to feel, whether conscious that those beats were put in place uh, so carefully or not.
0: Yeah. Without training, I had no idea how to apply the myriad of techniques that you need in any given moment. I just didn't know how to deploy them tactically, swiftly, and infallibly. So having rules allowed me to like be as amorphous as I am now. Because taking musical theater structure to an 8-minute comedy set in a stand-up space, it requires structure and then subversion, kind of the stuff that I've been talking about.
1: Before this technique came into play, when young Larry, growing up, I imagine there was some singing Rose's Turn into the mirror, perhaps.
0: Rose's Turn, Lot's Wife, all of the great. Lot's Wife, Carolina Chains, that Tony Kushner. He wrote that. He wrote the lyrics to that 11 o'clock. Yeah, I was, I was literally like singing, Murder me, God. Down in that basement, murder my dreams so I stop wanting. 11 years old, murder my hope of him returning. Strangle the pride that makes me crazy, make me forget so I stop grieving. Scour my skin, scour my skin. So I- I'm feeling. Take Caroline away. Cause I can't be her. Take her away. I can't afford her. Tear out my heart. Strangle my soul. Turn me to salt. A pillar of salt. A broken stone. And then, like, turn me to salt. Like, this is like my... I was built on... Clashing musical themes and tension, like that's the eleven o'clock number from Carolina Change. Yeah, I was just singing into the void. <laughs> you had a question?
1: <laughs> no, <laughs> I just want more. Before you sort of the technique came into play, before you saw theater as sort of like this art form that you could pursue professionally, what was young Larry like? I was definitely, I was, I was doing all of these things, but in a disjointed way.
0: I think that as like the talented young black boy in the hood, there was this like narrative created around me, like getting out and like becoming a doctor or something lucrative in that way, (laughs) lucrative and, and, and scholarly. And so I was, I definitely like hung on to writing as like an identity. I was like a voracious reader as a kid. And so writing seemed like, Oh, that'll be my liberal art. But then as I, literally discovered musical theater through VHS tapes that narrative started to change and there was huge tension because artists literally have a narrative of poverty and you know and the truth of the of the industry and like what I lived through is that it takes many many years of no's before the few yeses that make everyone believe that you know you've only ever seen yeses you know so basically To sign up willingly to that contract of like both poverty and the ideas of shame by ways of not having physical, tangible success in front of my peers and my family for years. It created a lot of tension that, fortunately, I started to go through as a teenager. So that by the time I got into my early twenties, I was all in. So once I would go to theater camp and I meet these kids who are professional actors who live in, you know, New York and L.A. who do this professionally, just with like headshots, resume, and talent, like going into the room and presenting your talent, I I, I got to tear down a lot of the, a lot of truly the roadblocks that I had been putting up. That like thinking that it was anything more than just getting into the room, presenting your talent and sticking with it through poverty and shame, (laughs) which are huge things. But you, if you over time, if you can simplify it, then it just becomes a meditation of those things. And so once I made the decision that this is going to be my career at like 16, I said, okay, we're going to do this forever. We're going to do this like Elaine. A stretch you know like we're gonna do this like bernadette peters once i was just honest with myself about what i wanted everything became
1: easier but first it was harder <laughs> so you mentioned a lot of these no's we're gonna take a break when we come back we're gonna transition to when those no's started to become yeses so we'll be right back with larry owens If you enjoyed what you just heard, I have some good news for you. There are extended interviews with our talent available on our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Evan. For those of you that aren't familiar with Patreon, it is a way for myself, my producer Alden, to make a little bit of coin off of this podcast. That support will allow us to continue to make more episodes. So if you liked what you heard and want to support what we're doing and the continued effort to keep doing it, please consider subscribing to our Patreon today. And we're back. So we talked a little bit uh, before the break about the no's that you were experiencing. And then it seems in the past year or so, some of those no's started to become yeses. You were profiled in Forbes several months ago with the headline, he went from being uncastable to playing the role of a lifetime in a strange loop. Life is full of what ifs, some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? Before I ask you about A Strange Loop, can you talk a little bit about your experience in auditions in terms of the kind of feedback you were receiving early on? As my
0: type, as a, as a fat black person, I'm not supposed to be intellectual, complex, or the lead of a musical. But I was walking into the audition room as this, wanting to be that. And so it wasn't even that people were like, you're untalented. They just had nothing to give me. Because the black track in the back of the ensemble can't pull focus. But I was like, hey, I can handle text. And then like the person who covers the lead... It, 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 there was just no place for me in the structure of commercial theater. Um, but I I found a home in development. And so like I was able to develop a strange loop and develop another musical for years. And I got this like on, on the ground training, but yeah, it was definitely, it was crazy, but I was, I was happy to be auditioning. I was, I was just so happy to be in New York. I was happy to be singing every day. I would think of my 16 bars as, a performance. <laughs> like I would I would think about going into the room and trying not to book the job but to book the room, which of course doesn't help you book the job either. <laughs> so I was trying to distinguish myself with taste, being like, hey, look at my take on this thing, which is so Brooklyn comedy. Look at my take on this song to, like, let you know that I deserve to be in the room, basically. But they don't want an intellectual black person in the room because then you start to poke holes. You're like, wait, why is the lead – not the correct ethnicity, <laughs> like like you're like like wait I shouldn't be playing like the dog and the servant and no back to back you know what I mean you start to say stuff like that that the that the British director doesn't want to hear
1: you know so let me ask you this you talk about they don't want to see the black person in the room is the they that you experienced was it always white people on the other side of the table yes I yeah I believe there's like one one person of color
0: that like in that time that I can think of that I that
1: I encountered behind the table. How systemic is this problem within theater? Because I think oftentimes when we sort of talk about diversity, we talk about it in fashion, we talk about it in film, we talk about it in television. I'm not sure I've seen the conversation so centered around the theater world. Yeah, I mean, it's
0: just these spaces... Like the commercial and the nonprofit were built on whiteness and and that as like the most profitable thing. So we have our we have our main subscriber base, we have our main audience, and then we have the people who come when we program them in, you know? So because it's so capitalistic. You know what that means. You know what I mean? Anything capitalistic from the top down breaks down into what is the most profitable thing. And normally in America, that means taking from black culture and then using it to aggrandize whiteness. And so I think that the theatrical structure is one that is still covertly prevalent inside of that scope of saying, come be in our show only in this way. We'll do your show programmed in specifically – specifically at our risk you know what i mean (laughs) and like at our risk and your privilege and i feel like that's like a lot of it is that it's like it's like you know this is a risk for us so we (laughs) it's like you're privileged to be here and thus don't come into the room so blank x y and z
1: It's interesting, too, because theater is so often recycled. You know, the revival system is is so prevalent within theater. So it's exciting to see the success of something like a Strange Loop or a Slave Play, knowing that even when they close in their initial run, they now become a part of the canonical sort of backlog of properties that future artists and future productions can pull from.
0: Like the fact that there's a cast recording, the fact that one day the script will be published and that... If you are like I was, like a young person seeking to just literally train yourself on material that is complex, that the character looks like you, where you don't have to do the the magical rejiggering of identity, where you shake up the circumstances of the written character's life to fit yours, because characters have not been written with your circumstances, even though you've existed in this country for hundreds of years and in this world for eons. So I think that that's so important, because that's how theater reached me. That's how theater got to me. I was able to listen to cast recordings and Again, I had to do a lot of astral projection of like myself onto these characters and to these, these usually white women <laughs> who are the leads of the musicals. But it's so beautiful that they are people who will not have to do that. And then they become the writers. They become the actors. They become the technicians. They become the general managers. They become the producers. And hopefully,
1: they become the theater owners. Now to A Strange Loop the off-Broadway show in which you starred in 2019. I'm gonna ask you, if you wouldn't mind, to read the description of your character Usher.
0: Usher is a young, overweight to obese, homosexual, and or gay, and or queer, cisgender male, able-bodied, university and graduate school educated, musical theater writing, Disney ushering, broke-ass, middle-class, far left-leaning, black-identified, and classified American descendant of slaves, full of self-conscious femme energy, and who probably thinks he's a verse bottom, but not totally certain of that, obsessing over the latest draft of his self-referential musical, A Strange Loop.
1: In his review, The New York Times' Ben Brantley wrote that you play Usher with, quote, confrontational charm and energetic weariness. The New Yorker's Vincent Cunningham wrote that you perform composer Michael R. Jackson's songs with, quote, power, humor, and pathos, filling in the textural gaps in Usher's characterization with an entire life's worth of mannerism and style. I think there's something interesting there, right? So we have this kind of establishment, older white critic, Ben Brantley from The Times. And then we have the New Yorker's Vincent Cunningham, who is a younger black man. I imagine, you know, we're having this conversation sort of about the institutional whiteness of theater, and obviously that has to, in some sense, extend itself to the people reviewing the work. So can you sort of talk about your experience of reading criticism or maybe even being in interview settings in which the person that's either writing about you or in conversation with you is sort of not tapped in to the language or perhaps... Um, trying to understand your perspective for more of a lived experience.
0: Yeah. I, a part of my training has been autodidactic. So for a long time, theatrically, I've been teaching myself. And one of the ways in which I was trying to, as a young person, curate something commercially viable was by reading theatrical criticism and sometimes even seeing the performances in question and weighing what I saw Versus what was reported, and so over that process of being, you know, a young New Yorker and doing that a lot, I began to see the breakdown in what was what happened in the theater and what the audience is receiving versus how how things get disseminated in press for various agenda. <laughs> there, I mean, I I would see I would see performances, and I would notice that the language used for people of color for people of size like. It was nowhere near as floral as the language used for very mainstream, classically appealing people, um, white people. And so I've been so keyed in to how to not only get myself across to the audiences, but also knowing that a part of my job is to appeal to critical nature. (laughs) This is a long way of saying that. The inherent bias of criticism, as it pertains to the inherent bias that we're speaking of in the theatrical system, it's all very chicken egg, or maybe even human centipede. So it's you know it's it's eating the shit of itself and then disseminating the shit into itself and then wondering why its colon is full of shit. That's what you're going to use on Instagram. <laughs> the American theater is shit. No, <laughs> no, it's shit. Eating shit and producing more shit, <laughs> and then wondering why it's sick off of its own shit. Um, no, I. It, it, it's crazy. It's crazy because just as I hang my hat up from the theater temporarily, maybe or who knows? I mean, Barbara Streisand did Funny Girl. We haven't seen her since. But, um, but as I like, as I sort of. I have to professionally detach myself from theater in a way right now just because of, as we been talking about the scope of it. I don't even know what I'm saying. Hold on. I take a second. Oh, this is so emotional. Okay. I'll, I'll answer your question. No. Can no, you? No. I'll answer your question. <laughs> I don't even know what I was saying. Um, What's making you emotional? Just that or are like speaking so much about theater. And like normally when I'm speaking about theater, I would be like, Protecting a candor in hopes of working with the establishment one day and now like I have so few hopes or even desires of working with the establishment in this moment of in the moment of podcast as like a young 20 something like, you know, just thinking about when you put in so much effort, it's like dating like if you if you if you keep pursuing the same type of person. Who don't, who who have never, who has systemically never been trained to fuck or find you sexy or worthwhile, then stop only tap, double tapping white chiseled torsos, Larry. In comedy, you know, they got, they got bellies. Cedric the Entertainer had a belly, black man. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like stop double tapping on the grinder of theater, but I'm still like so trained to protect whiteness. That I like, won't, I'm like, I'm not dragging them on the pod. You know? (laughs) We have to cut this out. I'm so, this is bad.
1: It's not bad. It is bad. I don't know what I'm saying. It's not bad. But what's interesting about it is so much of your success over this last year was through what you spoke about earlier, which is development. And this idea that something like a strange loop does not fit in with the canon of theater as we know it. And yet, your success has come not from your conformity to theater, but from carving your own lane within it.
0: And that's been my passion. Like, that's been the focus. And in terms of in terms of the criticism, my expectations from the establishment to see what I was doing was already baked into my performance. Me knowing that Mr. Brantley cannot see me was a part of what I was doing. On stage in a very subterranean way. You know what I mean? Because no matter no matter how much drop in I do as an actor, I'm still Larry Owens on stage and I'm still Larry Owens performing in front of a majority white audience on 42nd Street, you know, in the place of my dreams. But feeling that discord of being a black company on stage in front of a PWA predominantly white audience. The fact that (laughs) that maybe Vincent felt more included to see me might have been that I was sketching it for Vincent to see me.
1: So Jeremy O'Harris, for his play Slave Play, did several performances, which he called Blackout, that offered um, tickets to exclusively Black audience members. Yeah. And I have to imagine that had a profound effect on the performers, specifically the Black performers within the play, but also I imagine for Jeremy watching his play in that way. And I think this speaks to what you talked about earlier, which is the energy that live theater presents to a world. And so that the idea that the audience can be as important as the performers. You mentioned just now this idea of performing to predominantly white audiences, PWAs. Um, have you had any experiences with performing for predominantly black audiences, and how has that affected you?
0: Yeah, for Strange Loop, we had Black Theater Night. I was trying to see the second Slave Play Blackout, just as an audience member. I'd seen the play three times and like, Overdeveloped Man and Off-Broadway and then Broadway, and I was like, I just want to be in a theater, in a theater with all black people, like, just as Therapy just to like sit in the seat and like and sit in the theater and sit in a Broadway house and stake the claim that we, that black people have to every space on American soil. You know what I mean? Besides our native brothers and sisters, they have the birthright and we have like, you know, a lot of the work, right. To, to like the institutions that we build and even in new Amsterdam, in New York, like as an actor, I've done a, like a, like a close to a blackout, which was again, energy, unreal, just like so much safety to unpack real-life traumatic parts of yourself not for exploitation or, like, not, like, in a National Geographic way of, like, and now the obese black man experiences sex for the first time on an off-Broadway scene. You know what I mean? Like, not that. Like, it's just, like, oh, no, like, that's us. And so comedically, I perform for a lot of PWA. And I, I really do want to get up in front of a uh, uh, blizzardy blizzardy black, 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 crowd just to like i'm from baltimore and like i know that black people fuck with me and that's one of the craziest things about me is that even though i even though this is my natural voice like black people fuck with me heavy and i like yeah and i hope that you know i just get to reach more black audiences like as a alt brooklyn comic
1: you know when you're talking about the bodies that you were double tapping online i feel like so much of metaphorical metaphorical as gay men there's a beauty standard that's so often upheld and whereas in the straight world I feel like there's so much many more conversations around body positivity and showing bodies that are not one way especially in spaces like Instagram I feel like as gay men we have not culturally had that same awakening in terms of learning to value bodies that are not uh, chiseled
0: yeah I would so I personally identify as fat that's how I would I would call myself fat I don't think I want I don't think I want mainstream Stream thin media calling me fat as like a nomenclature, but I feel like that's like, Obese is too medicinal. Overweight feels like, okay. Plus sizes feels like it has like a more fashion bent to it.
1: I ask this too, because when you're being written about by others that do not ask you, you know, for instance, we ask people pronouns, right? Yeah, Their preferred pronouns to which it's like us asking them, how do you want me to refer to you in a way that you may, feels most comfortable for you? I don't feel like we afford that same opportunity to people whose bodies are not thin in terms of uh, the freedom with which we feel that we can talk about others' bodies.
0: Yeah, it's it's just
1: yeah, it's young
0: days. We just haven't really been talking positively or um, specifically about fat bodies, and so I think that we're gonna probably like have some more decisions on this. Like we're j- like sizes are just opening up to include us. So I think that language is going to follow just like for other communities. I think that in terms of gay culture and size, it's, I've never, as Larry Owens, wanted to change my body. I've wanted to change how the world interacts with my body, but I've never wanted to be thin. Like being thin never felt like it was going to solve my problems because as a Sagittarius double Cancer, like all my problems are emotional, <laughs> like it's like I was like that's that's just a topical, and I and for some reason from like five years old chubby like being teased, I understood that like that wasn't really the solution, and the solution to my feelings was self actualization, which we found out was through art, so being overweight now i'm changing it in the gay community because now i'm getting clinical because like i don't want to become emotional talking about the like utter majority onslaught rejection romantically sexually and, and besides artistically and amiably as a friend like it is absolute onslaught rejection like soft or hard from the majority gay community and i i feel the only thing that's different about me than my gay friends who do not receive that same rejection as size. So using the same, (laughs) same alchemic empirical data that I use to make acting and music work, I'm thinking romantically and sexually, I'm identifying what isn't getting across to my audience. And I know that it is a difference of size and it's just, just so it's so hurtful that I always like, I don't fault my brethren and community for wanting to be married with something that like looks like them or looks better than the ideal that they have for themselves. Like that makes sense in an evolutionary, you know, backwards political, you know, system of like, oh yes, as repressed children, we, we, we had no options. So when I imagined, you know, finally having options, it was something familiar to self, what I look like, or something that is, uh, commercially and capitalistically, better than what I present as. So, like that makes sense. That's linear. Even I have fallen victim to that. The difference is, is that my position as a fat person, as an ovary person, gives me the empathy to then. Break through (laughs) the fucking dog food I was served by the entertainment industry for my entire life. Like, break through the societal things that we were fed racially and culturally by the entertainment industry for the 20th century when black people didn't have rights. When fat people, like, whatever. Okay, now I'm getting too political. Let's keep it queer political.
1: I hope you don't mind me asking about it. The reason why I think it's important to talk about is because so much of the conversation is centered around the importance of representation. And it's just so often I feel like gay men culturally don't have conversations about bodies that aren't a certain kind of body. And so I just revel in the opportunity to have this discussion. But tell me if any way that you felt tokenized or you feel like it's not something that you want to be asked about.
0: No, I I think it's relevant to conversation. It's just emotional cuz like this is like Understood. I like I I truly don't care about White gays. Like, I don't like I don't care, like, deeply about, like, a lot G-A-Z-E of people. G-A-Z-E
1: or G-A-Y-S?
0: Second one. I, I don't care deeply about, like, a lot of people who disregard me, but it's just the fact that, like, these dominant tropes and culture trickle down to the people that I feel connected to, that I feel, like, romantic and sexual desire for, and because of the trickle down, it leaves me excluded. So I've had to spend, like, the past whatever, like, trying to get to the top of the rung so that my ideas can trickle down and hopefully when people who are outside of the the power aesthetic when they seek romanticism then they can be included it does suck in one way to always be talking about representation and inclusiveness but in terms of my mission if it's not about getting the biggest house or car you know or like having those people like scream larry at the end of a performance then it is actually about Stories that widen the perspective of people that should include people who look and identify the same way as I do. I feel like I'm always like just finishing an essay. My vibe. It's super TED talky.
1: It's not. Okay. It's so interesting to me that you're so conscious of how you're coming off, but how you're coming off is so different than how I'm receiving you. How you perceive yourself to be coming off is so different. Oh, okay. I'm oh. deeply moved. Oh. A couple more topics before we end. What's your experience like? of gay Twitter, something you interact with at all? The only reason
0: why in the past year and a half I've leaned into social media is because I fell into comedy. And when you post a show poster, you need 100 or 300 people to come. And so I started to invest in it simply to reach people to come to live shows. But what has resulted is this actual investment in social media So being with comedians in green rooms, like in comedy clubs and comedy spaces, and then being online and seeing, uh, let's just say, comedic dissemination of thoughts and ideas or comedic replication in that space. It's just really interesting to have culture working so quickly in a way. I think that gay Twitter, ultimately, I'm going to give it a thumbs up positive because queer people we've always been the culture makers i'm on it you're on it like writers of all of our favorite shows are on it it feels fun for the moment I think that Twitter captures the mania of living right now, where truly at any given moment we are watching impeachment hearings, and then we're going bead by bead on the gown at the Golden Globes, and then we're utterly pivoting to, like, now we have to save another faction of children who are, like, being under put under siege by the government, and now here's the Kiki Palmer meme. It's the mania of being required to have currency in so many places that is queer that ultimately gave Twitter right now a feels like a good moment it's just one thing that i like am not obsessed with is uh, i don't know i guess the commodification of comedy basically just like this template comedy uh, making everyone feel like a genius um i i think it's fine if you think that like doing a a comedic template on twitter and then receiving like you know a slew thousands slew thousands of likes and retweets is like fun but like being a funny person or a comedian like it requires so much more than the ability to like tweet a popular idea first i've been guilty of this as well where i'm like something happens you know what the first joke is and it's literally like how can i slide into home base first so that i can be the one and then everyone else who does this obvious joke in a template i can say i did it first when it's like babe that's not an original idea in the slightest. That is a recycled thing that we all saw put into a template with meme comments that have been called from black culture. Sit down. So that's dangerous. But I feel like whenever I, I feel like only recently have I been going into spaces where I'm like, oh my god, this is a twi- this is a gay Twitter party because it's New York City. So like you can get like six or so like avatars in a room and you're like, oh, and it's all, it's never the same. Like like because you, you do have voices for people and then you meet them and you're like, oh, okay. You're short. <laughs> Use that as the clip. Twitter is now so it's about lack of specificity. Twitter is now TikTok, and I really blame the algorithms so much. I, as an overweight black person on social media who does not do hyper femme and ratatata, like thing is like that's like not what I carry every day. So, so this is my online tension. My carriage and my voice are. Diametrically opposed, but then I'm also like, Larry, you are an artist. <laughs> like you're an at- like, babe, babe, you're an at- you have representation. Just be an act. Like get off, get out of the game. Like why are you in the game, right? Like why are you trying to be in the social game? And it's says, Oh, I need people to come to my live shows. Twitter's crazy. I don't like it. Now I don't like it. I started positive. Now I'm like, burned the whole thing
1: down. But one of the interesting things is like, I don't know how I would have found you, not found found your work, found you to be on this podcast if it weren't for being able to DM you on a place like Instagram. And that's literally how so many of my guests, these relationships that... You know, it's like, take Billy Porter, for instance. I've known Billy since I was a kid. When I reached out to his people about being on the podcast, suddenly the gatekeepers were up. But then it's you like you go on someplace like Instagram, and it's like, hey, Billy, I'm doing a pod. Are you free next week? And things happen so much quicker. Yeah, truly, yeah. So there's a way in which I agree with you about sort of the – where we landed ultimately, like burn it all down. However, there are ways in which I think from my perspective as a journalist, the access that I have to great minds like you, the immediacy of that, you know, is is so valuable to me. My last question for you. Was Jennifer Lopez robbed of her Oscar nomination? Absolutely.
0: In a world where Sir Shaw Ronan has three, where where um, Jennifer Lawrence has four, Angela Bassett has none, it's like what does a woman of color have to fucking do? Like being like like do, like yeah? Are you kidding? Like. People get nominated for so much less. It doesn't matter if it was like the searing, political, blustery, fat-jawed white male acting that you love in a historic biopic to get your fucking gold statuette hard. But it is an amazing, craftful performance of an artist who's been working consistently in so many fields in her entire lifetime, and she delivered. She anchored that thing. We can't give it to Conscience Wu, but we can give it to Jayla.
1: I'll never forget one of my favorite tweets of all time is from Roxanne Gay about Hustlers. It is, uh,
0: put it in the louvre.
1: Yeah, and it's literally, it ends with... Um, we should
0: read it verbatim. I think yeah. we should pause it because it, there's nothing like the, the actual text. Because Roxanne Gay, remember, a doctor. Like, um, <laughs> like a true writer And so even in 140 characters, 320, really able... To get to the bullseye of what we all experienced can i, I can i read it this yeah, is this yeah, is actually. what i want to read this is my this is my reading of it okay <laughs> please this is roxanne gay september 10th 2019 at our gay just saw hustlers movie uh overall i enjoyed it jennifer lopez was brilliant and a real awards contender and also what exactly is her workout regimen she looks flawless Constance Wu tried hard and had some great moments, but needs to work on her craft. (laughs) Like, just to really, to to spend that much of the review in, like, small, choppy sentences and ellipses, three question marks. She looks, strong, simple, she looks flawless. To use the word flawless before an absolute dick, Constance Wu tried. (laughs) And it's one sentence on Constance. Unbelievable. She's lucky she got a sentence (laughs) of like a criticism. And this is a black female critique.
1: (laughs) The black female critique. We're going to wrap it. I want to ask you, how do you feel about this overall? What just happened? I feel
0: absolutely crazy. I do. I do. It's hard to be a podcast guest. After hosting, I'm finding that in an interview, I'm, like, trying to find a way to be a comedian first because my, my comic friends, they're just, like, so good at being funny in interviews and, like, and taking and leveraging all of the, the like, tension that it causes by people asking you super personal things and just saying something silly. But as an actor born, not a comedian born, I always go to the truth and, <laughs> like, the honesty. And then I find myself in these utter ravines of truth that I don't want to dig out in public, not on a podcast. Are you gonna be able to listen to this? I don't think so. I think I'm absolutely haunted. But I will retweet all of the responses. Do you feel taken care of? Yes. No, I I feel like this was a, a beautiful, gentle, kind interview. I feel like I feel like we went to places and ultimately it is good. It's it's good to talk to
1: people. I want to thank you for being here. I want to tell you, while I have you in front of me, I absolutely love you with my whole heart. To borrow from the goggle quote that I referenced so much, but just never been done before, I feel like you have what, of, what the other girls want. And I feel like your presence in a room, it's not just that it like brightens the room. I just feel like whatever you're selling, I'm buying it. I'm
2: buying it. Like, I'm buying it. Not only did I appreciate how you opened up and that resonated, but I also just like really appreciated specifically just your dedication to craft and talking about the structure of writing, talking about the hard work that goes into comedy that's not a tweet, the impact of performing this work and how even what you just said about. You know, you're an actor first before a comedian, so you go to truth. All of those elements I'm just blown away by. By far, I've enjoyed this recording session more than anything else that we've done.
0: Oh, take that Cola Scola.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Now on to some notes I have.
1: (laughs) Oh my god. No notes. I'm Evan Ross Katz. Shut Up Evan is produced and edited by Alden Peters. This podcast is made possible in part by our supporters on Patreon. So we tip our hat to you all. Go to patreon.com backslash shut up Evan to get access to bonus content, including extended interviews and bonus clips. And again, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for giving a shit about anything that I have to say.